and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 265 and part two of my conversation with University of Nebraska Omaha percussion professor Hannah Weaver. We'll check back in with Hannah shortly. But first up, Champion of Champions. This past weekend was Mizzou's annual Champion of Champions High School Marching Band Festival which we host every year, we're able to in mid to late October. This is usually one of the final, if not the final event for the high school marching season for many of the bands who attend, and we get a really good sense of what's going on at many of our top programs in the state. Now, I say we're able to because we've been hampered by various events over the course of my time here. Since arriving at Mizzou in fall of 2017, we hosted it that first year. Then in 2018, we had to cancel because there was stadium construction going on during the entirety of that year. We hosted the event again in 2019, but then, obviously due to the ongoing pandemic, we had to cancel it last year. But we're back at it. Overall, things went really well. We had 23 bands with us for the prelims, Then the top 10 played the finals in the evening session. Our most recent band area hire, Dr. Christian Noon, oversaw much of the event, particularly the judging and results through a new program called Competition Suite, which is fantastic and allows for an easier format to continue to collect all of this information. We also had great help through our large ensembles coordinator at Mizzou, Brooke Danielson, who pretty much we all think is the most important person that we have in our entire school. She makes everything run. And our students, and particularly our GTAs, were fantastic all day. They held up all right. They took care of all of the agitated folks who, you know, have a lot on their plates to take care of with each of their own bands. And we were incredibly fortunate to have the planned rain hold off until the very end when we were finishing our cleanup. Success all around. And now I have time to do my teaching better. Do it better. Yeah, that's it. All right, let's get back to Hannah Weaver, the educator, percussionist, and chamber musician, and all-around fun person, joined us for part one last week, where she was discussing her teaching responsibilities at Nebraska-Omaha, the city of Omaha and how cool it is, her work with Heartland Marimba, her work on the Health and Wellness Committee for PAS, and her sports background while she was growing up around Indianapolis. This time around, we'll get to her college education, the challenges she faced completing those degrees, and our usual close to the show. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 11th, 2021. And it begins right now. When you get there, what's the, um, well, first of all, like, what's the first indication that you're not in Indiana anymore? (laughs) Yeah, let's see. Well, I mean, honestly, and this is going to sound weird because Nebraska is so flat, but Omaha is really hilly. Um, I was very surprised when I got here. Um, I made it through 10 winters in upstate New York and Ann Arbor, never having to get snow tires. I had to get snow tires here because my car could not hack it. The hills were so bad. I would slide right back down. It was terrifying. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely hillier. I mean, I live in stereotypical Indiana, like my street dead ends into a cornfield. I lived 15 minutes from the uh, motor speedway where the Indy 500 is. Mm-hmm. So like whatever parks you picture and, yeah. about Indiana, that's like where I lived. Like parks and rec is a, is a documentary. It's so true. Yeah. Also, I would yeah. like to point out that that is absolutely accurate for much of Indiana. Uh, you know, the episode where they kaboom a park, they build yeah. a park oh, in yeah, one yeah. day. We yeah. did that. That was actually a thing. It was a weekend. It took two days, but 
we built a park in my town in like two days. Everybody's there with their hammers and things. And of course, I don't question it. I'm a kid. I don't think about it. Now I think back, I'm like, how is that not a lawsuit waiting to happen? Oh, right. It's just a bunch of random community members and kids running around. Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. But yeah, very accurate. Very yeah. accurate. Everything's supersized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, no raccoon infestations. Oh, is is Avon the Eagleton? Yes, it is. It is. Thank you. That was the other, the other parallel that I made. Yeah. Yeah. I, no joke. It's like the, the kind of richer, better, they win at everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Good recall. (laughs) Well, I, my, I've watched it. I've watched a lot of those. I mean, I've seen the whole series, but my wife, for my wife, it, it is her, like, she just turns on anything after season, like starting in season two and just like giggling, like, cause it just, because it's it's not just that it's funny, but they're not mean to each other. It's just like straight hilarious. Yeah. And and it's just everything just oh, it's, there's so many good. Things. Oh, I love it. It's one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. No question. Do you have a Ron Swanson poster on your wall? I don't. But uh, um, I'm sure, you know, Andrea Vinay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, she oh, yeah. She's yes. A huge Ron Swanson fan. Yes. All all of the uh, percussion grad rooms at Eastman had Ron Swanson posters, pyramid of greatness. um, You know, never do anything half-assed, you know, do one, don't do two things half-assed, do one thing whole-assed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. She was the Oracle. I think the year before I started my doctorate, I think all the grad students dressed up as parks and rec characters. Oh, nice. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. When you're there as an undergrad, which of these was was uh, kind of they may have been equally as as important or influential for you. But what having Burrett as a teacher for one, or being around the best of the best in not just percussion but like piano, violin, vo- like you're around yeah. just all stars all the time. What was what kind of where where were those influences? How did they manifest towards you? I think both of those were equally huge for me. And I'd like to add, like with the being surrounded by such talented players, it was amazing how supportive the environment was. I think Eastman has a reputation of being a very collaborative, supportive environment. And it's absolutely true. I feel like everyone had enough diverse interests and talents that um, it was it was easier to cultivate this supportive environment because everyone could kind of see all of these variety of interests um, and ways that they could excel. Um, yeah, it was phenomenal. You know, now I, I, I think back and I'm like, why did I not go to every single performance all of the time? You know, I think back and I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, it's good that I practiced a lot, but why was I not watching all of these performances by the, you know, every faculty performance, no question. I should have seen every single thing. Yeah. No, I definitely have a little bit of regret thinking back. I'm like, God, you you know, you don't even always realize it when you're in it. Um, Just how amazing all of this was, Uh, you know, and I, I went in um, just kind of like eyes wide open. Um, I actually didn't get in any other programs for my undergrad. I was only accepted at Eastman. Um, So in an, in a way it was interesting. I don't think ever since my freshman year of undergrad, I don't think I've ever been so open to information and uh, comfortable with being uh, not worse than everyone else, but comfortable with being flawed and, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, comfortable with how much work I had to do. You know, I went in with this attitude, like, okay, got to make the most of this. I want to just soak everything up. Um, but within, you know, within a couple of years, it started to (laughs) weigh on me a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's an absolutely phenomenal environment. And, um, Professor Burrett was just amazing at cultivating just a really tight community in the percussion studio. Like it felt like a family. It was very supportive. Um, you know, part of it, he brought in some amazing grad students with him from Northwestern, Sean Connors, Chris Jones, Amy Stevens, um, and then Ivan Trevino and Maria Finkelmeyer were already there at Eastman. So it's like, it's just like superstars yeah. now that they were my grad coach when I was a little dumb freshman, you know? Mm-hmm. 
so he was very good at having the grad students sort of help uh, keep an eye on the studio, you know, and support and guide. And, you know, every, God, I think every lesson I had with him, I remember calling my mom after every single one, just gushing about how much I loved it, how much I was learning. You know, it's, God, you talking about this makes me miss it so much. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's part of the beauty of still being in academia is I feel like I'm, uh, I still get a lot of this energy from my students um, and from my colleagues, but, you know, I definitely miss some of that being a student and just soaking all of this up. It was, you know, it was really an incredible time. Yeah. I feel like every, per- every person I've talked to who's, who's got a, had an Eastman connection, very, just very similarly kind of talks about the, uh, that it, it, you are surrounded by these, you know, this incredible roster of, of colleagues as a student, um, but not in a cutthroat yeah. way, which yeah. is great. I mean, that, what a, I mean, that must be, that's even better, you know? Yeah. It's phenomenal. And it, you know, it's funny, not that I, I, I like hesitate to say this because I don't want it to come out wrong, but I almost felt more of a competitive environment when I went to Michigan. Than I did at Eastman. You know, it's it's just funny, different, and some of that just varies based on who's there at different times. I'm sure. I'm I'm out of words, sorry, <laughs> but I I'm just so grateful. It was really an incredible time. Yeah. How is it that you end up at Michigan after that? Well, I mean, I had always really respected the program at Michigan. You know, I looked there for my undergrad, um, and with uh, you know. Joe Gramley and Jonathan Aval being there, just two phenomenal musicians and very, uh, you know, very different personalities, very different strengths. Um, I was just excited about uh, kind of exploring different areas at Michigan than at Eastman. First of all, I wanted to be like, I was excited at the idea of being at a, you know, a, a bigger school uh, rather than, you know, a music conservatory. I wanted to be somewhere where, um, the music department was, you know, kind of a function of the whole university and there were other aspects. Um, I loved just the depth of instruction at Michigan, you know, it was phenomenal. We had, uh, you know, like I said, uh, just Gramley and Jonathan Naval is the main teachers, but they always had phenomenal adjunct. Um, Ian, I got to work with Ian Ding while I was there, got to work with, um, Joe Becker, um, Oh gosh, we had a phenomenal Brazilian Pandero uh, teacher for a little bit. He was there on like an exchange program. So it was just this huge roster of world percussion. Um, and, you know, I got to do some jazz vibes. I just got to fill out um, some areas that I maybe didn't dedicate as much time to at Eastman. And I absolutely loved that. Um and I mean, the cal- the caliber of player there was phenomenal again. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, kind of diving into orchestral playing a little bit more there too. Um, that's when I, I did the National Repertory Orchestra one of those summers. And like, I really feel like I was prepared for that because of working with Gramley and with Ian Ding and with Joe, um, you know, to be able to do some of this. Uh, which ultimately decided that orchestral playing, while I love it, wasn't going to be as big of, you know, a factor in my life, but I'm so glad that I like got to experience that. It was also really motivating for me because again, I feel like the interests of the students there were so diverse. You know, we had some, um, we had some people like uh, Chris, I was at school with Chris Size, who now plays with Latitude 49 phenomenal chamber music, uh, you know, contemporary music group, um, that came out of Eastman or sorry, came out of Michigan. All of them went to school together there at Michigan. Um, you know, so there was a lot of that kind of, uh, energy percolating and different projects and things there. So it was, it was really, you know, a, an amazing compliment, um, in some ways to Eastman, but also like a continuation of the kind of caliber of students that I got to work with and the faculty that I got to work with. How was your time split between the professors? Oh yeah. As a private student. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, um, that was the, uh, awesome thing as a grad student, they allowed us to kind of take overtime lessons. <laughs> so, um, every semester I basically was taking time and a half. Like I was taking an hour and a half of lessons and 
it broke down differently every semester. So for example, one semester I took an hour a week with Gramley, mm-hmm. um, but I also had jazz vibraphone lessons for a half hour every other week and orchestral percussion lessons a half hour a week every other week. Then another semester I took a half hour each with Gramley and Aval every week. And then every other week I had an hour with, um, you know, our timpani teacher at the time. So there was, you know, it, it kind of varied. Um, and I think it was great for grad students. Sometimes it seemed to be a little, um, a little much for some of the undergrads. Like there wasn't always, um, a clear trajectory for them since they were bouncing between teachers. Typically they would do it like every other year, maybe, or every semester that they would change between teachers. But still, it, you know, it was kind of interesting to see um, the difference between having two full-time teachers and one. Um, no faults of, you know, no fault of the teachers, but it's just a, it's a different dynamic when you are, uh, you know, sharing that load uh, and trying to kind of uh, cover all the material that you need to for an undergrad. But I was super grateful as a grad student. I, you know, got the best of both worlds and then some. Because you were coming from such a a strong program for undergrad, how much discussion of technique was there when you get to be a a master's student? I actually kind of revamped some snare technique with Aval. I've always been of the mindset that I want to draw from each teacher, whatever their approach and whatever their strengths are, and then... I'll assimilate it however best works for me. But when I'm working with that teacher, I'm going to go as much as I can whole bore with their technique and their approach so that I can experience that. So that was a big thing with Evol. We did a lot of snare drum, a lot of drum set, and a lot of hand drums um, and just kind of soaked up. So all of my lessons with Evol tended to be a little more technique heavy because that was the content that I wanted from him. Uh, from Gramley, we spent a lot more time on sound, musicianship, uh, interpretation, all of that, which again, some of that I think just is his, you know, that's one of his great skills and great talents is his ear and his sound concept and his experience, you know, playing with Silk Road, his experience playing as a soloist, um, all of this. So that was much less technique based um only times we really kind of delved into technique was when it was impacting the sound i was creating so all of our conversations were sound into technique whereas the other you know with evolve we tended to go the other direction which was interesting and then my other you know with the orchestral and jazz vibes and timpani lessons maybe a little more technique in some of the timpani lessons but largely it was content based um that's not to say that I certainly, you know, like I certainly had some gaps and things. I still do have certain technical um, areas that I can continue to improve. Uh, but I feel like I was able to get a good balance of uh, material from the different teachers there. Did you like Ann Arbor? I loved Ann Arbor. Yeah. Yeah. Ann Arbor was a lot of fun. It's interesting. I actually spent um, one summer there working because once one of the years I was out in Breckenridge at uh, NRO, but then the other summer I stayed in Ann Arbor and worked and just enjoyed it. It is so fun in the summer. You know, I feel like a lot of college towns just kind of clear out and there's not much going on. Ann Arbor is phenomenal. They have all of these amazing street festivals and music festivals, and art festivals, uh, food, you know, all of it. Um, yeah, I definitely, definitely miss it. I haven't been back since grad school. I really want to, I still think about going to Jolly Pumpkin and getting sour beer and their truffle fries because that was like my favorite thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, definitely miss it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a good place to live, I think. Yeah. That's what I hear. I mean, you, you can't afford to live there, but it's a great. No, place. right. Yeah. I say I should qualify that. It would be a great place <laughs> to live if I had 10 times the money I do. But Right. <laughs> I've, I've heard that too. I, that, that unfortunately, that aspect. Yeah. But yeah. Do you go right into the doctorate after it? 
did. So I took a year off between undergrad and master's. Okay. But then I went straight to my doctorate. To do what yeah. in between? Uh, so I actually lived back in Indiana uh, again, um, did some teaching and performing. At that point, uh, you know, again, going back to some of our discussions of mental health and wellness, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I, I finished my undergrad and um, to be frank, I thought I was going to quit music. Like mm-hmm. I thought I was, I thought I was done. Um, I was incredibly burnt out um, and just didn't feel like I could make it. Didn't feel like I wanted to make it enough. Uh, really, I think was more the factor. It's that I felt like I just couldn't muster the enough motivation to be successful at it. And so I wanted to step away to move back home. And I was looking at just, you know, just working for a little bit before I decided what I wanted to do. And pretty quickly, pretty quickly, I missed music um, and realized that I did really want to continue. I just needed to figure out how to um, readjust my uh, mentality towards music as both a hobby and a career in order to be successful at it. So I'm glad, you know, honestly, I think I wish I had taken some time off before my DMA. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I got as much out of it as I could have. Um, Again, massively burnt out uh, by the time I was done. And, you know, I think back to all of the amazing things that, uh, you know, Eastman has to offer. And I feel like I could have taken advantage of that better during my doctorate if I had, um, you know, maybe taken some more time, come back, you know, a little older, a little fresher. Mm -hmm. Um, But grateful for how the way things worked out, everything, you know, worked out. And there's no point in, uh, you know, sitting here and regretting it but right right well I think there's um, also no shame for people taking time in between degrees i think oh a lot of yeah. times there's this pressure this concern and i understand i mean one of my concerns was the financial uh aspect i was like well if i keep going straight through then i'm not starting to pay my loans back and i you know if i am going to go back to school like where am i going to live in the meantime what am i going to do you know so i i get that i certainly do um but well, yeah, I mean, no, that, no shame in taking time. No, for sure. I mean, how, how grateful you must be of the lifeline, just having your family that you could go, I'm coming oh back. Oh my gosh. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what, you know, I tell my parents that all the time. Like I'm so appreciative, which again, brings back to that whole conversation of, you know, classical music and the, uh, the major bias that there is towards, people with, you know, a certain amount of economic means or financial means right. yes. uh, to be able to pursue this, you know, in an academic setting. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's something as simple as just as auditioning, like how much money it takes to just audition. Let's, 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 I mean, you could just focus on uh, if you're going for orchestras, like this is, oh this is gosh. what organizations like the Sphinx, and yeah. um, and many others of places in Houston and Atlanta and Detroit that have these where it's like that's a huge part of what of what they do is just allowing um, giving giving resources to people who don't have them and the access. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, I know. I know. It, <laughs> which opens a whole like whole other conversation. And I'm so ashamed that I'm, you know, only really starting to understand this over the past couple of years, you know, which again, just goes deeper into the, the bias and the, uh, you know, the privilege privilege that I've had. Yeah. The privilege that I've had in my life. Um, but you know, that's what's, it's, it's something that I really would like to, uh, figure out ways to help, help with, um, help with more yeah and i see that you know i see that some in the communities around here mm-hmm. um, some of the schools that i'll you know go and recruit at or go and work at yeah well i mean i think that's that's the way is is that you you got to put yourself in those situations yep and, and see it kind of firsthand yep. um you know I, I one thing i'm curious about if you don't mind me asking about this yeah. is the uh you know, when you're in, well, we can th- we can think about this. I, I do want to hear about it through the the doctoral lens. But in undergrad, like, at what point did you realize I have to finish and get out, and or I'm like, 
I'm barely hanging on. I mean, I feel like there were there were a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. Um, it pretty significantly hit me towards the end of my junior year and especially senior year. And yeah. I think some of that was the the stress of, am I going to take grad auditions? Like, do I really want to keep doing this? And the reality of coming out of the bubble of academia and having to do something with this degree that I've been working for. Um, it really started to hit me and, uh, you know, in some ways I went into a little bit of survival mode and kind of shut down and closed off. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would definitely say like, I mean, as early as sophomore year, like, I feel Mm. like I got through freshman year and loved it was still like pretty rosy outlook. But as soon as, as soon as I came back sophomore year, I don't know if it was, you know, the added um, the added component that I no longer was the youngest class. So there were people that I should be better than. Oh, right. Yeah. Note the air quotes, um, you know, that you think like, okay, I've been in school a year more. So it's not okay for me to, uh, you know, be the worst anymore, which I was fine with my freshman year. Um, you know, at least from a, like, mental standpoint. I was like, I have, you know, all of this time to learn and grow and I should take advantage of it. But then I started pretty heavily comparing uh, myself. So yeah, definitely by junior, senior year, but as early as sophomore year, certainly uh, there was some, some mental tension going on. (laughs) Mental tension. Interesting words. Um, So you, when you do go back though, for your doctorate, you go back there. Yeah. I mean, I know it's, it's a, I know. I think it, uh, my therapist would have plenty of things to say about that, but, um, well, it's, it's because so it's, I, always, I always joked about that. I was like, God, am I just like a sadomasochist? Like, why did I do this to myself again? No, it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did. It certainly did bring up a lot of, um, latent, uh, mental issues, mm. And I think some of that contributed to uh, my mental health during my, or mental health issues during my doctorate. Certainly, it's like I'm back in this place. There are all these ingrained memories and associations, but there were so many positive ones too, obviously. I went back um, and I, again, I'm so glad that I did. I feel like, you know, I owe a lot of my opportunities to Professor Burrett, to my education there, to the connections I made with students, the things I learned from my fellow students there. Um, but yeah, it definitely, I mean, eh, yeah, you got to wonder uh, what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, well, you said it, you clearly, you got, uh, there were so many positives that also came out of the experience. Yeah. What, when you're a doctoral student, what's, what's your, I assume you have an uh, assistantship? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, Eastman is one of the schools that does not fully fund doctoral students, um, and it really does not uh, give anywhere near enough. Yeah. Um, you UNC, just so you know, UNC Greensboro, same thing. Really? <laughs> yeah. Did not fully fund. We were, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. paid my I, rent. That, that, was, was, that was a big thing that. for me, too. Like, when I was looking at schools, I was like, man, like, what am I thinking as a doctoral student, you had a variety of different duties. Um, all grad students helped coach percussion ensemble and helped do different tasks for Professor Bird around the studio, like uh, administering juries and you know just general office work or business things if he needed as he needed. Um, but the doctoral students also uh, taught the percussion methods class and taught uh, University of Rochester lessons. So Eastman's under the umbrella of University of Rochester and uh, any students from University of Rochester could take uh, lessons from doctoral students at Eastman. Um, So I did a mix of both of those, of the uh, private lessons and of the percussion methods classes. Yeah. And then, I mean, outside of that, uh, you technically weren't really required to be in large ensembles, but the reality was you always were because we just always needed percussionists. Um, so often playing in the primarily the, the contemporary music ensemble, um, but sometimes in other large ensembles and then percussion ensemble. 
uh, which again, as a doctoral student, you were not required to for your course degree, but it's Eastman, you're going to be in professional ensemble. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, every, every doctoral program has a different, uh, set of requirements as far as the academic side. Um, you know, whether you have to do a dissertation or different number of recitals, Eastman, they give you a couple of different options. You can do a dissertation. Um, and if you are a, a PhD student, so music theory or musicology, you have to, yeah. but for music performance, uh, your doctor of musical arts degrees, you have the choice. You can do a dissertation, you can do, um, a lecture recital and there's, there's a, a document associated with that, a shorter one and then take several research seminar classes, or you can do a combination of um, the lecture recital, some research classes, and some independent study projects, which is what I did. Um, so that all, I you know, I appreciated that. I thought that was great. And then there's the dreaded uh, written and oral exams at the end, mm-hmm. exams, which um, more than anything wrecked my mental health <laughs> easily. I mean, yeah. Let's, 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 so, do you know Megan Arns? Of course, I know Megan. Yeah. So her office is. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Right, she's right there. Uh, yeah, give yeah. her a big hug for me, by the way. Oh, I will. I, I she's she's actually in. Oddly enough, she's in New York um, right now with. Um, oh, nice switch. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Nice. Um, she was here when she was going through that, and it was like, and uh, I mean, and she was just like. It was a real, I mean, it was, it was I don't a struggle. know how the hell she did any, like I did nothing when I was studying for those. I don't know how yeah. the hell she was like, well, it's Megan. She's phenomenal. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, yeah, basically from, well, this was, this was really stupid. This is what I did my last semester of schoolwork. I decided <laughs> to do, um, to do Trump. So I did an international competition yeah, yeah. as I'm finishing my doctoral coursework and I'm studying for comps and writing my lecture recital. Dumb. Um, again, thank you, Michael Burrett, for making me think that I can do everything. Yeah. Half joking. I am. I am very grateful. Of course. Uh, but no, for, for studying for comps, God, I think I spent uh, two and a half months, literally every day, six to eight hours. Yeah. And this fell over Christmas, over New Year's. Yeah. I distinctly remember New Year's Eve. Yeah, I was up until 2 a.m. on New Year's Eve, but that's because I was... Um, studying for comps yeah and my boyfriend came home very drunk with a bunch of his friends and i'm lying on the couch like studying <laughs> this fresco baldy isn't getting in my brain <laughs> <laughs> like oh sorry did you not want to listen to some a show for yeah. drinking music yeah <laughs> but look at how listen how dissonant this stuff is it's like 700 years old <laughs> yeah so hip yeah, uh, yeah. so dragged myself through that and then it was yeah. over and now it's all forgotten <laughs> i and i would tell you i think that was that was what bothered megan was just like oh, it's she's awful. Just, yeah she's just like i this is not how i'm successful as a as a pedagogue or or an uh uh, a, you know, a, a scholar, like none of this fits my skill sets. Well, what's even worse, uh, what I think is even worse. I mean, it sucked doing it as a classical major. Jazz yeah. majors took the same damn test. <laughs> they took the same test. The only small differences, our theory analysis and our score ID were slightly different, but the essays, all of the terms, all of this yeah. stuff, it was 95 classical 5% jazz content. I would say maybe 90, 10, like yeah. absolutely not equitable. Yeah. Which is absurd. And then, yeah, on top of that, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to me to cram all of this information down and not have it be more targeted to your area. Right. Like I would not have had, I would gladly have, you know, had a, you know, the equivalent long test, but on something like on specifically percussion material. Yeah, yeah. My oral exam, which was supposed to be specifically percussion, that felt like nothing after. Yeah. Right. I digress. <laughs> I love Eastman, except for that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Oh, yes. I love that. All right. <laughs> 
First couple questions are not random, but uh, first question is, what's an issue in percussion education, percussion uh, performance, something like that, that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I would say, and this is not specific to percussion so much, it's just specific to like music education in general, a lack of uh, like willingness to do the work. I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not that old, but I always feel old when I say stuff like this. It just seems to me um, that more and more people are wanting the shortcuts. They're wanting uh, things to be fixed quickly. And if they're not fixed quickly, they kind of give up on it or they they're looking elsewhere for a solution instead of also recognizing that th- this is a skill. Like this is a skill set that you have to constantly hone and beyond that, that you have to constantly maintain, um, you know? And so I, I don't know if it's uh, a combination of, you know, the YouTube nor- notoriety and TikTok notoriety, social media, all of these different things, glorifying the finished product or, um, you know, showing a skewed, perspective of people's success or abilities. Um, I think that all contributes some, but I feel like I'm getting a lot of students that are just not open to the idea that it takes time and work um, and they want shortcuts. So that, that gets under my skin. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. When you hear like either in something going towards that level of like, well, what's the easy way or something like that. Do you sense it? Like, hang on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yep. I'm like, I, yeah, I, I get that. I get that little like tension in my chest and I'm yeah, like, yeah. Hey, Hannah play nice. Like, this is what I have to remind myself. Yeah. Like, don't just lash out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I mean, who, who doesn't want it to be easier? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's a fair question. Like if there's an easier way, but okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely can like sense that coming on so bad. I'm always eavesdropping on my students when they're practicing too. Mm-hmm. It's got like our little suite, you know, I, I, I don't teach in my office. I teach in the teaching studio, um, which the students can practice in there as well. And yep. so, you know, I'll kind of like hop around and I'll be, I'll be practicing in a room and I can hear things through the wall and I'll hear them playing the same lick really, really fast, really, really wrong over and over again. And eventually I'll pop my head in and I'll say something or, you know, for example, we did some orchestra mock auditions last semester and I could hear students like playing wrong notes and I'd pop my head in and be like, look at measure three, it's an A, not a B, you know? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, I definitely, definitely have to remind myself to like, you know, give people some grace too. But yeah, it always bugs me when people are wanting to, on the shortcut it's like if it was hard for me it's gonna be hard for you too right yeah <laughs> isn't that why we all became teachers we just want to make our students miserable too no. um <laughs> no, maybe i shouldn't say it. Uh, gosh am i not trying hard enough <laughs> <laughs> no yeah no i yeah <laughs> i got you all right next question take this wherever you want to go um, uh, being a percussionist, who's also a woman floor is yours and go, and go. Um, yeah. Oh man. Uh, you know, it's been, um, so that I've obviously been thinking about more in recent years, especially now that I am at, uh, you know, at a, um, at a university holding a teaching position. Uh, cause honestly, I have not really had female teachers myself. Um, I mean, I had the pleasure of working with Cynthia Yeh a couple of summers at Aspen, you know, in a limited capacity, but as far as like regular lessons, it's always been with males and, uh, wasn't really something that I thought about a whole lot or questions. Um, and I think that I'm relatively fortunate Uh, I certainly have had some uncomfortable instances throughout my career as a result of being a woman, but overall, I feel like I've not really suffered negatively. 
So I'm great, you know, I'm grateful for that, but I also just have not had a whole lot of female role models early on in my career. Now, you know, I feel really fortunate. I see a lot more people, um, a lot more females kind of rising up in the in the fields, um, you know, and I'm so grateful to people like, um, you know, like Cynthia Yeh and Julie Spencer and Nancy Zeltzman, you know, all of these like powerhouse females that have done a lot of work and, um, you know, paved the way for us and made things more possible. I am really sensitive to it when I'm working with female students. You know, I try mm. to give them some additional guidance and, uh, you know, let them know about some of my experiences. Um, one thing that I've noticed particularly with a lot of my female students and myself included, um, is a tendency to apologize, uh, a lot, even just for simple things, like when playing in a lesson, if they make a mistake, I'll say, Oh, sorry. And I do it too. If I'm demonstrating something and I screwed up, I say, Oh, sorry, let me show you. It's nothing to be sorry for. And I cannot think of a time that I've heard one of my male students do it. Not to say that it hasn't happened, but um, there's just a little less confidence often with some of my female students. Um, and so I've been, uh, you know, pretty diligent about calling them on that if that happens, just to try and, you know, make them aware of it. It's definitely... Uh, um, an issue. And again, I'm really grateful that it's not been as much of a problem for me. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really great to see more and more females moving up in the field. Yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> I, I always think about, I've said this a million times that it's like, I remember when like PASIC now, I think about going to PASIC when I first started going like 20 years ago, like regularly. Yeah. And, and it would be like, you know, four or 5% female. And now it's like 10 to 12. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely more. It's still not where it needs to be, but it like, at least it's, I mean, we're not even getting into the racial component of that. I'm just oh, saying okay. like, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> just, just gender balance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is again, why I'm like, God, I like, I don't feel like I have anything to complain about. Like there's, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely getting better. And that was something kind of cool, actually. You know, I said I was judging that marching band competition this weekend. Um, I actually saw like three or four drum lines that were all female, mm. which was kind of cool. Mm. I have not seen that as frequently. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, that was encouraging to see. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things with, um, with Heartland is that, because you're the only female identifying in that group, right? Yep. Um, because this is, to me, it's it's always an interesting thing with the, um, you know, so many of these percussion groups. They're not even just all white dudes. Like, it's like all white dudes with facial hair <laughs> and weird glasses. Like, it's weird. Be someone who, who, who wears contacts and, and shaves regularly. And I'm always like, man, am I just doing it wrong? Like. Yeah, you don't have the right face for it. That's what you. I, that's what I you don't. Have to I gotta work on fixing my face. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I figured something out from this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Glad I could give you a good takeaway. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it's funny. It's funny you said that uh, because you know at our most recent concert, you know we were selling some CDs afterwards, and they're CDs that were made a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. not, not even that many years ago, but like two or three years ago, uh, before some of the personnel shipped. So yeah. we're looking at the cover. We're like, Matthew's the only one that's still on there and like beyond that it's just like very obviously not us like yeah 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 female right. yeah. like <laughs> different different nationalities it's like very clearly southeast asian yeah 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 it's right funny, so <laughs> it shows up in weird ways like <laughs> yeah. yeah gotcha yeah. it's All always right. nice though because i you know if we're touring i get my own room so there you go <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, I guess, oh, look at this. I uh, don't have to, oh, yeah, don't have to worry about a shower being yep. taken up for a while or. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'll move on to some other uh, questions. Not, not as uh, not as serious. Um, yeah. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, gosh. 
Oh gosh. I'm sure, I'm sure I have some really terrible mannerisms. Oh, one, what is the hair twirl? I'm glad that nobody can see this on the cast. <laughs> I'll sit here and I'll tie my hair in knots whenever I'm like thinking or focused. So uh-huh. that. Oh, oh, it's, it's, it's the arms. I've got like the, the crazy, crazy person arms. I always compare myself to one of those wind socks at a car dealership. Yeah. 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 Um, I just talk with my arms a lot. I'll look back at like pictures of myself giving a masterclass or something. Yeah. And I'm, Got my arms like flailing around. I, I don't even know what is happening. There's just a lot of me and it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. My friends will joke. They'll, you know, we were at Aspen and, you know, it's a huge amphitheater outside and they can always pick me out because some crazy person's arms flying around. You can see right away. Uh, yeah. That's why they give you the crash symbol part for the end of Chike 4, right? So this is, yeah. yeah. I'm ready for it. I know I've got, well, I've got the wingspan too. Um, you know, see a Thursday and stuff. I, oh, oh yeah. Perfect. That's what I'm here for. Got my yeah. nice long, long <laughs> arms. Nice. Well, oh, so funny thing is, is we have myself included, funny, oddly enough, are working on, and some of the other grad students here are working on Takat, the, um, uh, and Ignatowitz. Yes. And it's yeah. like, got those, and it's, we were talking about the kind of the, you know, like the, the lean in and you're just like, I don't I think I'm tall enough to pull this. <laughs> well, that's what, yeah. One of my, uh, one of my really good friends at Michigan, um, yeah. uh, my roommate, sweetest, sweetest girl, like yeah. great musician, just really small and petite. Yeah. And, you know, she was working on the class out and at some point it's like, I feel for you. It's like the, you're doing literally everything you can. You're doing it all right. right but yeah. like there's, yeah. <laughs> no. But I mean, man, size is not always an indicator. If you listen to Cynthia Ye play some crash cymbals or bass drum. Yeah. You know, she's oof, man. Yeah. Talk about getting a big, big sound. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Oh God. Okay. I, I, I could give you like five of those. Um, <laughs> but there, there's something, there's something that I'm very good at is absolutely obliterating any recipe in the kitchen. <laughs> Notoriously bad at all things culinary. Um, well, gosh, uh, it would either be the fried ice cream incident or my orange juice pie recipe. Um, when I was three or four, I decided I wanted to make a pie. Mm-hmm. And I want to put all my favorite things in it. Yeah. Um, so I put orange juice, Cheez-Its, ice cream, uh, and flour. Cause I knew you put flour. Like I knew in baking, you always put flour in. Yeah. Yeah. So God bless my mom. She had like a little pie crust for me. I put it all in there, stuck it in the oven. It was awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Um, so that was pretty bad. Yeah. The other, other notorious one, uh, I was trying to make fried ice cream. We had like our deep fat fryer. Well, you know, for all that I was, you know, relatively intelligent, I didn't realize that the boiling point at oil was different and it would not be bubbling the way that water would when you're turning the heat up. So I'm looking at this thing and I keep turning it hotter and hotter. How is this not boiling yet? So I had it all the way up as high as it would go. So I got, I'm like, all right, here we go. So I got my ice cream out, rolled it in some little, you know, frosted flakes or cornflakes, whatever. I'm going to put it in the, put it in the fat, put it in. And immediately the whole thing just explodes <laughs> shooting cornflakes across the room. The ice cream disintegrates in like two seconds flat. My friend was there with me and he just threw me to the floor, like tried to knock me down. Uh, yeah. Didn't work out very well. We did it again when the, the deep fat fryer was turned much, much lower and it turned out pretty well, but that was almost uh, catastrophic. <laughs> This is why I, I leave all the cooking to my boyfriend. He's yeah. wonderful at it. And I bring the wine and that is it. <laughs> nice. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Ooh, okay. I get all the inner like mental commentary going on where I'm like judging myself for my, for my own tastes. I don't know what that says about me. Somewhere on the ceiling is the answer. I know. I, know, I love that I'm like staring yeah, up like, at the ceiling that huh. it's going to answer it for me. Can the ceiling in my office help Hannah? <laughs> Can you help me think of anything? <laughs> oh, let's see. I mean, man, I'm I'm a sucker for 
honestly any of the Harry Potter movies. You okay. put any of those on, I'm going to sit down and watch. Some of that's just the nostalgia too, though, because sure. I love the books better than the movies. But mm-hmm. there's just something about looking at like little young Daniel Radcliffe and sure. Rupert Grant, and they're adorable. Yeah. Um, gosh, a really bad movie. This is probably going to be controversial, but I've never been able to make it through a Christmas story because I just think the kid is too whiny. <laughs> my brother and I started watching it and as kids, we were like, we just didn't understand. He was so whiny and he just wants a BB gun. But yeah. So probably yeah. unpopular opinion, but yeah. Well, it's, it's weird. It's one of those movies that I don't think for some reason it was never on my radar as a kid. Until really? like, I was much, yeah. And then I found out about it, I think when I was like, maybe in grad school or something. And I was like, what is this film? And now, obviously, now it's on like 24 hours a day on what, yeah. TBS or TNT or something like that. Yeah. So it's like, I know it now, but it's it's funny. Like, th- like that to me is my kind of connection is just, I guess I should have seen this when I was younger. Yeah. You know? Well, and that's the thing. I think like maybe if I had seen it at a certain age, I would have liked to, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have Do you have a favorite of the, of the Harry Potter movies? Oh gosh, of the movies, yeah. Um, or and of the books, yeah. Oh, of the books, four. Is that four Goblet? Is Goblet of Fire? Yeah, That's yeah, cool. yeah. I mean the the later ones I love. Um, I just felt like that was the best mix of like humor and good pacing, good storyline. After that, it got a you know a little darker. Oh yeah. Um, Harry's just a whiny adolescent all through the fifth book. And, you know, so fourth book, they were still all, you know, like I enjoyed all of them. Yeah. Um, of the movies, oh gosh, um, probably one of the first three I really like. Oh, okay. And I just think, I think they're so adorable when they're young. Yeah. The older ones, uh, there's just too much material to cover in yeah. the movie, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like a lot of the storyline was kind of sacrificed because you don't want to sit through a five-hour movie. Right. Well, fortunately, it, they all came out before the Lord of the Rings extended cuts and the the three, the trilogy of of a 280-page book of, uh, you know, of um, what's the... Hobbit? Yes. Yeah. Which I, I was just like, I'm I sorry. I've only seen the first one because I yeah. do, do love Martin Freeman. Oh, well, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What's your go-to karaoke song? Mm, probably Spice Girls. Wanna be. It's a good one. That's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That may or may not have been involved in a, one of my last nights in Ann Arbor when I almost, uh, almost lost my ID. I, I, I put my ID down to get us the uh, pool table and I forgot to get my card back at the end of the night. <laughs> Always dangerous, but yes, Spice, Spice Girls want to be. That's a good one. It's a good one. It's you know the it has like there's so many hooks in that song. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's like a meet like you play it and you're like I know it's like I know what this is. <laughs> yep, yeah, it's the closest I'll ever be to like any sort of rap. I cannot, I I can't spit words out fast enough. But uh, that's about as fast as it's gonna get. Nice. All right. So in a, in a culture sense also, what's something that if you, and I'm thinking more on the obscure side, but something that if you meet someone and they say, Oh, I'm a fan of blank, whatever it is. And you're immediately like, we're good. You're my person. Yeah. What's, what's that for you? It's Creek. Oh, that's been my thing. And I've rewatched it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And the more I rewatch it, the more I just thoroughly enjoy the characters and the storyline and just their treatment of um, some of the, uh, you know, social or political issues. Um, And by treatment, I almost mean non-treatment, like the way that they kind of normalize it or, um, you know, it's like the the plot line isn't that there's a gay couple. It's the plot line that there's some other drama in the relationship, you know, right. it's, it's just another normal relationship and there's yeah. no drama in the town really about accepting them. It's other things, you know, it's, I just, I thoroughly enjoy it. I think it's, uh, you know, really witty and funny. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you have a sports fandom? 
Not so much. I mean, I've, I've always been a little more of the, like, I'd rather play than watch. Sure. But I am not upset about sinking, sitting and drinking some beer and watching uh, <laughs> basketball or football or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say if I'm going to go uh, watch something, it's generally baseball, which I know is maybe not a popular opinion. Mm. Uh, but I think that goes back to, you know, years of playing. Um, and actually in college, I kept uh, stats for all of the university teams. So baseball. Oh, wow. Basketball. Yeah. So, you know, like on ESPN, if you're watching, you get live updates. So I did that in a much less, uh, you know, polished sense for, sure. uh, university of Rochester. So for basketball, we'd have to track every single rebound, yeah. pass, play, all of that volleyball, football, mm-hmm. uh, lacrosse, all of that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, when I go to baseball games, I like to keep the book. They have the College World Series here in Omaha yes. every year. So I got to go this past year with my mom. She was visiting, uh, which was super fun. Yeah. 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 So I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. The I, I will say, like, it is definitely a fun, particularly in the summer. And it's like, particularly if it's not like super hot. Yeah. It, it actually, it's really pleasant and it's like really relaxed and yeah. you, can just, you can just keep talking. Like, you know, you're not super right. focused on Exactly. It. You can like engage with other people and yeah. Yeah. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? God, most of Europe, honestly. Mm. Um, I've been uh, to Paris and uh, to the Netherlands, both for competitions. So I yeah. barely got to explore you know i'd like to do a lot more um yeah i've been dying to go to italy and england primarily like to start but would love to go to greece go to spain like any yeah drop me anywhere in europe and i would be i would be thrilled closer to home i've been wanting to go uh to like the grand canyon uh glacier some of the other national parks yeah um i've hit a good number Every, I love hiking out in Colorado most summers. So mm. anything that I can like get up really high on a mountain, I yeah, think it's yeah. living in Indiana so long. I just want anything that is, uh, you know, high. has a grade, has a gradient. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to feel like I worked for it too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Have you been to the uh, Badlands? Oh yes. Oh it's yeah. Stunning. Yeah. It's that was so one of my good. favorite family vacations. We did the Badlands, Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Through the Tetons and then mm-hmm. camp Yellowstone. I, we w- that was a, a trip one one summer that we went up to. We went based, I think, to what's the what's the this like the largest city in South Dakota? Um, falls something. Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls. So we went to Sioux Falls, which was like awesome, like shockingly yeah. cool. And then we we did uh, I think it's I ten or something like that that goes down the south part of the state to. Um, yeah. To uh, Wall Drug. Yes! Wall Drug. Weirdest little town. I love it. <laughs> you got like the five cent coffee and the don't the the, the, the cake donuts. Oh, so yep. good. Hey, uh, I have a set of bones that I bought there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, and then we did – and then we the next thing was the Badlands as we were going – traveling west. And I – it's because you know this too. It's like it's flat. It's flat. And then you're like, what is – what the hell is up there? Yeah. And, it's and like then you're like, whoa. Planet. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. And I just still couldn't get over the fact that you could like go out and just be in yeah. this area. You know, it's like yeah. you're immersed in it. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. The, 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 I, we, we remember vividly remember the, the person at the, the center at there was just like, he like handed us a map and he's just like, uh, you, you just go wherever you want. Just go. Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter. It's like, just walk. doesn't matter. It's like, oh. <laughs> All right. Yes, I will. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I mean, I'm sure there's a better one, but I, uh, I still remember one of my summers at Aspen playing a new piece by one of the student composers in which the composer asked me to bow tinfoil. Like take aluminum foil and bow it. And I just remember looking at that on the page, showing up to the first rehearsal, setting up this like sheet of crumpled tinfoil on a suspended cymbal stand to bow it. And the composer's sitting there 
we get to that spot in the music and I just bow it and I'm deadpan staring at him, really glaring at him. Like, really? This is what you, this is what you want. This is what you want. And it was, uh, it sounded kind of like nails on chalkboard. Um, I will say it made sense in the texture because everyone was doing some very weird, scratchy extended techniques. Um, but I actually apologized to the composer afterwards. Very nice guy. And again, like I said, it, it works in the texture, but I was giving him the worst stink eye. I was not happy about that. <laughs> I see it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. All right. I, and and finally, Hannah, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, whatever, has impacted you the most recently? I have to say, I think it would be this uh, mixed media piece that I saw at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And of course, I'm not going to recall the artist or the name of the work. Um, but as I said, it was a mixed media piece that integrated um, a lot of uh, physical materials like pieces of wood, newspaper trash, um, like chicken wire, all of this stuff. The piece stood out from the wall almost a foot, like from like six to 12 inches out. It was three-dimensional and all of it combined looked like kind of an abandoned railroad. Um, and it was meant to evoke, um, the, uh, train loads of Jews that were transported to, um, the, uh, concentration camps during the Holocaust. Uh, and I, I want to say some of the materials on it, like, I think some of the newspaper used was maybe articles about it or something. I'm trying to remember, but it just, um, Visually, it was very bleak and like very striking without any context. Uh, but then understanding the the context behind it added a whole other layer to the um, to the exhibit. And it was massive. Like I think it was like twenty feet by twelve feet or something. It was uh, visually really um, overwhelming. You know, this is why I always like to. Uh, give context with musical pieces too you know like i said it was effective on its own you know looking at it you you definitely got kind of an ominous uh sensation but then actually reading uh some of the notes about it added another layer you said mixed media was there a an audio or visual component or was just that it no, was no, had all these different that, what what is i always forget the it's like a collage or something. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. So it had paint and things too, like, um, yeah, I, for, I forget what the exact term is for in the art world with yeah. that. I think Cleveland has a really uh, surprisingly good museum of art. Mm. They have a great contemporary art uh, section in particular, which I really like. But. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Hannah, we are done. Awesome. Thank you so, thank you so this much. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being, you were amazing. This was, oh, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. So great to chat with Hannah over these past two episodes. What a pleasure. I look forward to keeping up with her career as it moves forward, and I'm looking towards seeing her work with Heartland Marimba, particularly as it performs soon at PASIC. Speaking of which, in lieu of a real rave this week, I'll talk about heading to the upcoming PASIC convention in Indianapolis in a couple of weeks. I, like many of you, are probably looking forward to seeing each other in person again. Still a little weird to think that we'll be around so many folks indoors over the course of a few days, but I'm glad that the Percussive Arts Society has put in vaccine measures and the like to be as protective 
as possible about the event. But really, it'll just be great to be around folks that I haven't seen the past couple of years. I'm really looking forward to seeing a lot of great performances, catch up on panels and further discussions, and also just running into folks on the random that you do. I think this will be pretty damn cool all around. And now as I was thinking about this, it's realizing it's been two years that I've gotten to do the podcast basic selfies, getting my pictures with my guests. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to that again, while also realizing that I now have another hundred episodes or so of guests to include in my pictures. So I'll be trying to accomplish that. Anyway, the next episodes of the show will be the annual PASIC preview episodes, which will come out a couple of days before the start of the convention. So stay tuned for that. And if you see me, please say hello. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode of the show and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. I'm taking next week off to get ready for the annual PASIC preview episodes, which will drop on Tuesday and Wednesday before PASIC. Until then.